Thank you guys. Good morning. I have two goals today. The first is to be a little bit longer than like five minutes and to not drop the microphone because I have a feeling I'm going to. So if we get those two things accomplished, I'll be happy. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to be starting in verse 42. When you got it, say got it. So starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. So who knows what happened in the beginning of that chapter of Acts? What event was it describing? The ascension. Go ahead, Pastor. Pentecost. Pentecost, right. So the Holy Spirit had come upon Jesus' disciples in a major way to the point that they were confused with being drunk, right? And so this kind of comes in my, you know, kind of how I read it, after the dust has sort of settled a little bit. So I think it's important to take notice of that because that was a big deal, right? The Holy Spirit showed up like Jesus had promised. Um, so it was kind of like the original revival probably in a lot of senses. So after they're kind of getting back to normal life, what are they devoting their lives to? These are the Christians who were the least removed from Jesus, right? They had seen him in the flesh. So what were they focusing on? Apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. And so what was kind of the result of them focusing on those things? What does it say? All signs and wonders. Some socialism, right? <laughs> They were selling their things and um, making sure everyone had what they needed. Um, And people were being saved day by day. Their numbers were growing. So, again, I think it's just interesting to take a look at what the early Christians were focusing on. And the Lord's been teaching me in particular about two of these things. And that's fellowship and breaking of bread, or as what we practice today, communion, right? So... You know, we just finished up actually the whole book of Luke in Junior MYF, and I told Mariah, is Mariah in here? I don't know where she went, but I, oh, there she is. I was like, I'm going to give you a little shout out, because she made the same observation that I had already written down for my sermon today on Wednesday, and that's that Jesus broke bread at two significant times. So can you tell us when those were, Mariah? Do you remember what you said? Right. So before he died, and then after he was ascended, he was walking with them on the road to Emmaus, And they were talking to Jesus about Jesus, right, and things that had happened. And he used the breaking of bread to trigger their recognition of him. They didn't recognize him until he broke that bread. So, again, I think it's pretty important. It's something that it's good to take a close look at what this means. But that's not the only time that we see the breaking of bread in the Bible. Now, Tammy would be very proud of me because I did a very scholarly thing, and I Googled (laughs) breaking of bread (laughs) in the Bible, right? (laughs) It's a good place to start, right? <laughs> um, and so there were a couple things I noticed. Obviously, we know the verse about Jesus being the bread of life. And he says, if you come to me, you'll never be hungry. So we know he has sufficiency, right? He's sufficient. He meets all of our needs. Then we also see the loaves and fishes story, right? He prayed. He broke bread. And there was above and beyond what they needed. So there's abundance in this too, right? 
So I just love this picture. Today we did communion. We do communion here at Gateway the third Sunday of every month. And what does Tim usually say or whoever's leading it? This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So it's about this sacrifice. But then we see these other pictures of Jesus being the bread of life and abundance and sufficiency. And isn't that just kind of the tension we have in following Jesus? It requires the ultimate sacrifice, but he's promising I'm going to meet you where you're at and I'm going to be everything you need and I'm going to take you above and beyond what you can even imagine. So what's kind of triggered these thoughts for me is this amazing book that I just finished not long ago, Faithful Presence, Seven Disciplines That Shape the Church for Mission. It's by a pastor in Illinois named David Fitch. Um, So he talks about what he refers to as the Lord's Supper, being a discipline, again, that shapes the church remission. It goes beyond just taking the practice of communion, right? It permeates a lot of different aspects of his church's life. So when they sit down to have a meeting as an elder team or a leadership team, they're welcoming Jesus' presence among them, and they're saying, we're going to submit to you, Jesus. Even in their kind of small group settings, I would call it, they do this practice of they're gathering for a meal. They make sure that everyone is sitting in a circle around the table, even if that requires making two or three rows of people in a circle so everyone's facing one another because they're all equal and we're all under the lordship of Jesus. And it's this idea of I'm going to show up and listen to what you have to say without listening to respond, right, because we're both submitted to Jesus. Um, And so he says as the pastor, he has to make sure that he kind of takes a step back because in that sense we're all equal because we've all been saved through Jesus. Um, So I would call that active listening. I'm a social worker by trade. That's kind of what we're taught to do. But really, we see it in the Bible too, right? Um, So I'm just going to read this quote from David Fitch describing sort of what he practices. So he says, First and foremost, then, the table leads us into submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. There is no kingdom without subjects to the king, so we must begin by subjecting ourselves to him. As we move closer to the table, into the very core of Christ's presence there, he draws us into submission. As we submit to his presence there, we are realigned into his reign. Our submission to Jesus spreads out to mutual submission to one another. And a new social order is birthed out of this, which is nothing less than his kingdom. I thought it was pretty good, too. It's like, wow. <laughs> I mean, again, it's just the idea of I'm going to show up with you and I'm going to meet you where you're at. It's not about my assumptions I already have about you. It's like, let's let Jesus come among us and tell us together what he's trying to say. So I believe that if we think of the Lord's Supper in this way as a discipline that we can practice above and beyond what we do the third Sunday of every month, even though that's also equally important, right? We can find a healthy practice for building community. So here at Gateway, part of our identity is described in our mission. It's the first line, right? I think it's the first line. We are a family gathered around Jesus. We say that all the time, right? It sounds really nice. It's great. What does it mean? Right. And I don't know who all was involved in writing the mission, but I love the word gathered. I mean, I think it's exactly what we're describing, right? It's not about we're so focused on doing what we need to do to get right with Jesus, but He's so beautiful and he's so wonderful that we want to show up and be at his feet and gathered around him, right? So what does it look like for us as a church to be a family? And what was the early church doing when they devoted themselves to the second thing that we wanted to talk about, or I wanted to talk about today, fellowship? 
Um, so Penn Clark, at the beginning of April when he was here, he actually talked a lot about this word fellowship because the Greek word used here is koinonia. Um, and one of the ways, again, it's translated as fellowship. It's also translated um, for community, communion, joint participation, contribution. But fellowship is the most common translation used in the Bible. And Penn Clark made the argument, I think it's true, that um, communication is central to that idea of fellowship that's being described. He said that we can see this in the way that God sought fellowship with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? He came down in the cool of the day to spend time with them. And I love that picture because, again, that's what the whole Bible is about, right? Sin entered in and broke that fellowship, and Jesus came and made it so we can have that type of relationship with God again. So he does, he worked really hard <laughs> to get that type of fellowship with us, right? And then we have the opportunity to have that fellowship with others, which is something that everyone is seeking. All of the world around us is seeking fellowship. That's why we see fraternities and sororities and colleges. It's why we see Elks Lodges, country clubs, take your pick. So we have a unique opportunity as a church to show what that healthy fellowship looks like. But unfortunately, I think we would all agree that a lot of times we fall short of this. So, again, what did the Lord show us in the Garden of Eden? He wants that fellowship with us. What's the requirement for fellowship with God? Show up. Is there more to that? Belief in Jesus, right? Faith. Faith in Jesus. I mean, that's what Abraham had before we even knew what we know about Jesus, right? Um, but what's the requirements we make for others to have fellowship with us as a part of the church? I think sometimes we add a couple more things to that list, right? And I, I really have no interest in being a part of a faith that requires more from you than the God we serve requires from you. Um, if I've learned anything from working with people, and I get paid to help people, so... You could say, I know a little bit, although I really feel a lot of times like I knew nothing. But it's that loving someone well does not look the same for each person. Um, even after going to school for years to learn again how to professionally, quote-unquote, help people, I can't apply any formulas I've learned But because I don't know what your needs are. But I know a God who knows what your needs are. So it's not about this formula that we follow to interact with one another um, but it's about allowing God to enter in to the midst of what we're, what we're doing and when we're interacting together. I can't tell you how many times I've sat with a person and had no idea what to say <laughs> and just a quick prayer, and, you know, God shows something about that person, and it ends up being a powerful moment, but I can't take credit for that. It's just the Holy Spirit showing up. Um, so we serve a God who has made each and every one of us. And I just think it's a good picture because our God is so much more complex and beautiful and diverse than we often make him. I think he shows this in the diversity of his creation and in the diversity of his people. But how often do we try to like take the easy way out of that by labeling and saying, I know who you are because of X, Y, Z. I know this. Because that's, that's just lazy, right? It's just easier to make those quick judgments about people rather than taking the hard work of I'm going to sit with you and let you tell me who you are and let God show me who he's made you to be. That takes a lot more time. 
takes a lot of vulnerability on your behalf and, and being willing to learn and being willing to hear. But we just miss out on so much when we don't do that. We miss out on opportunities for God to show up and teach us more about him. Because the reality is we need each other, right? So, you know, I value the idea of embracing diversity of beliefs, um, diversity in personalities, all of those things. Any way that you can be diverse, I want people like that in my life. I don't want people that think just like me, right? And I I don't think God wants us to be that way because he created all of us. So we're all a piece of him, and we can know him more fully when we surround ourselves with people that are different than us. Um, But what is going to happen inevitably when we embrace that diversity? Conflict. Who here likes conflict? Just me and Garth? (laughs) Oh, yes, of course. (laughs) It depends. That's very true. Um, So I'm going to... I'm going to read a quick story. So one of the other disciplines that David Fitch talks about is reconciliation. They kind of go hand in hand. So this is what he has to say about conflict. As a pastor, I have encountered numerous conflicts within church life. It is an inevitable part of life together. Sometimes when this happens, I'm asked to mediate, make a judgment between the two people, and enforce it. What I've learned, however, is that I must openly reject this mode of operating. I must refuse this way of reconciling as if it were from the devil. Instead, I must see this moment as the opportunity to invite these persons into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of Christ. If I do mediate and make a judgment on the conflict, inevitably, one person will leave the church and the other stay. But if we submit together to what God is doing, God takes us together to somewhere new in our lives and the life of the church. Often we go where we could have never imagined. One time, a newly widowed woman, Emily, in our church was overburdened with taking care of her two children, homeschooling them, while also holding down a job. Sylvia, who was a social worker, offered to help. She sacrificially gave many hours to working with Emily's children. One of the children had special needs, according to Sylvia. She believed that Emily was not taking care of the children's educational needs. After a few discussions with Emily about this, Emily asked Sylvia to not visit her children any longer. Sylvia, in a huff, reported Emily to the Department of Children and Family Services, charging Emily with neglect of her children. The resulting breach of trust could not have been worse. When the pastors asked them to come together mutually to submit to Christ, we were refused. Emily told the pastors to get Sylvia in line. Sylvia said it was her professional duty to report Emily to the proper authorities. She was an expert. She knew what she was doing. There was no need for further discussion. Two more times, we attempted to bring them together. The third time, the pastors sat with each one and asked what they were afraid of. We talked about the kingdom and the way God works through his presence coming into these spaces. Nonetheless, both Sylvia and Emily refused to give up the authority of their positions as parent and social service professional. They refused to put those claims aside. They both left the church, and our church body was poorer. All the pastors firmly believed God was teaching us much about how to care and be with our children and children in the neighborhoods, but this kingdom opportunity was foreclosed, never again to be revisited. I think it's really interesting that he shares a story that doesn't really have a happy ending, right? What could have made that a, like, have a better outcome, do you think? Mm-hmm. And who would have to believe that? 
right? They both have to believe it. So again, I love that he doesn't say that this all worked out for good, and he made it clear. He took the time to say, like, our church was the worst off because of this conflict and because it couldn't be resolved. He didn't gloss over it and say, well, obviously that was meant to happen, and that's that. He's saying it's still important to do this, to do conflict in a healthy and godly way, regardless of the outcome, because we can't control each other, right? He had to grieve the loss of two beautiful and life-giving additions to the church for the sake of living out reconciliation and healthy fellowship well. But David Fitch did not allow this to discourage him because he says later, if our church is self-enclosed, engaging no one outside our immediate circle, we can go on for years without a disagreement, doctrinal struggle, or situation that challenges the way things have always been done. Churches and mission, however, should welcome disagreements as signs that God is moving and that he comes to be present among us. They are opportunities for the kingdom to break in and change the world. They are signs of faithful presence. Can we have this response to conflict? What would happen if we had that response to conflict as an opportunity for Jesus to show up in our midst instead of... I have to choose sides. I have to be right. You have to be wrong. We might both be wrong. We might both be right. That's true. So what does the Bible say about handling conflict? Let's take a look at that. You can turn in your Bibles if you want. I'm going to be reading from Matthew 20, but I think these verses are very familiar to most people. Um, I'm going to be starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. 20. Is that in chapter 18? I'm sorry. I got it wrong. Thanks, Tim. So, (laughs) verse 15. I got the verse right chapter wrong. It's chapter 18. So in verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, which means what? What was that? As an unsaved individual, right? Yeah. I think you would still love them. That's true. But... If you, um, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among us. So I think the Bible gives some concrete steps that are really helpful, right? Step one is talking to the person, but how often do we not take that step? Right? And with good logical reasons not to. We're peacemakers, we Mennonites, right? So that's disrupting the peace. We forgave them. It's fine. We're not mad about it. But we are. We're still mad about it. <laughs> right? We're hurt. So I am like an ex I've been an expert at erasing step number one, right? I It's very easy for me when something happens, when there's conflict. I can see about 20 sides to that story, 20 different explanations for why that person did that to me. But the thing is, and so I will will say, oh, you know, it's probably not that they did it on purpose to hurt me, right? That's fine. 
I'm good, but I'm really not okay. Um, and the fact is, if I don't address it and let it continue to bother me, I've gone to step four, or however many steps it is, for no reason. I've been jury and judge without giving them the opportunity to say why they did what they did. I don't get to decide their reason for doing things. I might have a good guess. Um, I might be right, but it's still not fair for me to say that is exactly why they did it and then to avoid. So what I'm really doing is not, it sounds all great, right? That sounds like good conflict resolution skills with myself, right? But it's not. It's avoiding a hard conversation. It's just a better excuse for avoiding that hard conversation, right? It's immaturity, right? Exactly. <laughs> now, I'm not saying you don't take a step back and evaluate how you can have this conversation with love and grace. Like, that's great. Um, but hopefully, if we're willing to have that conversation, we're going to learn more about ourselves and about Jesus. And we're going to, again, have missed that opportunity if we didn't do that. So this is something I've been trying to live out and is comfortable as I normally am with confrontation, it's really, really hard for the reasons I just said. So I actually had this situation with Pastor Tim a couple months ago. Um, there was something that he had said that bothered me or something he had done that had bothered me, and I did ask him to share if I could share this. So we're good. Um, <laughs> so I let it go on for months, and again, I was like, I'm fine. Like I, I can see why he did that. It's, it's all good. But really, it wasn't okay. It was impacting our relationship, and we're doing ministry together, so I can't let that happen. So I went and talked to him, and I just said, this is how I felt when you did X, Y, and Z. And he's like, well, this is why I did X, Y, and Z. I said, oh, well, okay. So you didn't mean to hurt me? He's like, no, obviously I did not. And we were better after we had that conversation. And it was actually relatively easy. Sometimes we psych ourselves up and think it's going to be much more challenging than it really is. And so my challenge is for us to do this with one another. I'm committed to doing it. I hope we can all be committed to doing it. And I'm willing to walk alongside you if you feel, feel like this would be something that's challenging. Um, I'm willing, but I'm going to tell you, like, I've, I've done it multiple times with multiple people here in this church, and it's ended well every single time thus far. Not that it will always go well. Obviously, that's not the case. Um, but I think if we're all committed to doing this for one another, we're going to be healthier. Um, and I think that makes us an attractive it makes fellowship attractive to the world around us, right? Yeah. And again, the most important thing is we get to learn about Jesus in the midst of it. So remember, as we're kind of entering into this, if you're willing to do the same, that Jesus is our bread of life. He is sufficient to meet our needs, and he's even able to show up and be above and beyond what we could have ever imagined. If we invite him into our conflicts and really all of the challenging situations we face, he can give us what we need and even above and beyond what we need. So is there a ministry? Prayer team can come forward. And I will stay up front if anyone wants specific prayer on this. I'm not really, I don't consider prayer one of my strengths, but I'm willing to do that with you. <laughs> okay. Let's pray. Let's all stand together and pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you are the bread of life, that you are what we need, you are above and beyond what we need. Pray that you'll just enter among us and allow us to just chase after you more and invite you into every challenge that we face together, God. 
that you can just help us bring healing where healing is needed. And we just thank you for doing it. In your name we pray.